Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Introduction, The Long Reach of Antiquity. 325 years after the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, a group of Christian bishops from all across the Roman Empire gathered in the town of Nicaea, only about 43 miles from the newly minted imperial capital in Constantinople. That meeting was something truly new in the history of Christianity. For the first time, the leaders of the faithful would argue, reason, compromise, and then eventually promulgate a set of doctrines regarding the identity and divinity of Jesus Christ. And they would do it all with the blessing and protection of the Emperor Constantine. We've never been able to shut up about it since. The document that emerged from that council, usually called the Nicene Creed, is absolutely central to the worship and belief of millions of Christians over the world today. Many major Christian denominations recite the Nicene Creed as part of their Sunday liturgy, including Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and my own tradition of Anglicanism. Even Christians who do not recite the Nicene Creed often find they're in agreement with its basic doctrines, the Holy Trinity, and the full divinity of Jesus Christ. In this way, many denominations often use the creed as a sort of litmus test for what counts as Orthodox Christianity. In fact, one reason that many denominations refuse to acknowledge the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, usually called Mormonism, as Christian, is because Mormonism does not affirm the Nicene Creed. So deep do feelings about the creed run that opposing it can seem tantamount to damnation. I remember once in college I attended a Greek Orthodox liturgy as part of a class assignment. After the service, one of my classmates asked the priest if his church believed that only members of Eastern Orthodox churches would go to heaven. The priest told us that was absolutely not the case, that in fact the Eastern Orthodox Church did not proclaim anyone to definitively be damned, no matter what their faith or lack thereof. Then he paused, and after a moment he said, well, except for Arius, I mean, they're pretty sure he's in hell. Arius, as some of you astute listeners will know, was the Egyptian priest whose denial of Jesus Christ's full divinity and equality with the Father is what prompted the Nicene Creed in the first place. Now, I thought then, as I do now, that this Eastern Orthodox priest had told me an extraordinary thing. Here was a church unwilling to say that Judas was damned for selling Jesus out to crucifixion, but quite sure that Arius was damned for saying the wrong thing about Jesus' fundamental nature. It really is hard to overstate just how big a deal the Nicene Creed is for most of Christianity. The churchmen who had the largest say in its creation and defense have gone down in history as some of the most legendary, most venerated thinkers of all time. In fact, for Eastern Orthodoxy, one particular name in this period, Gregory of Nazianzus, is honored with the title The Theologian. 
He is Gregory the Theologian, in other words, the standard by which all other theologians must be measured. And in the Christian West, the Nicene Creed was one of precious few documents that held together Roman Catholic and Reformed traditions. Martin Luther, John Calvin, and many other Protestants were ready to rethink almost all of Christian doctrine, and were extremely skeptical of the authority of church councils to decide anything about matters of faith. So you might think the Nicene Creed would be in their crosshairs. Yet almost uniformly, the magisterial Protestants refused to reject the Nicene Creed. This artifact of church tradition was so precious to all that it still commanded belief from both Protestants and Catholics, even as they painted the fields of Europe red with each other's blood. You are probably seeing why so many Christians regard the Nicene Creed as the great triumph of the early church. Yet there are others who see the creed as the beginning of the church's fall from grace, after all, the Nicene Creed is formulated under the figurative and almost literal shadow of the Roman Empire. The council was called not by any bishop or faith leader, but by the Emperor Constantine, whose interests arguably lay more in maintaining order than attaining truth. Seen in this light, the Council of Nicaea is the frightful beginning of the long, twisted history of Christianity's enmeshment with politics. In fact, many of Nicaea's critics will point to it as the beginning of Christendom, that cozy allegiance of church and state that has produced witch trials, racial apartheid, defenses of slavery, and oppression of women and sexual minorities. Moreover, Nicaea represents the end of a certain kind of theological tolerance. For one of the final outcomes of that first council is that Arius, still holding fast to his convictions, is exiled from the empire for them. Now, make no mistake, Christians had been disagreeing with each other since the first twelve disciples argued over which one of them was the greatest at the Last Supper, and bishops had from time to time disfellowshipped other Christians whose actions were hurtful or whose teachings were odious to the majority. But they had no power at all to enforce penalties beyond their own individual communities. All that changed with the Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity. Nicaea will not be the last time that Constantine or his successors weigh in on matters of religion. Far from it. For those who desire religious toleration, Nicaea surely seems like the end of a simpler, better era of the Church's history. So what really is going on here? Is the Nicene Creed the Church's glory or its shame? Is this the scene of a theological crime? And if so, who is the culprit? Or is it the site of divine inspiration? And if so, who glimpsed God's truth most fully that day? And what can we, who are the heirs of this turbulent council's fraught legacy, learn from it? What can it tell us about religious disagreement, about power, about racial politics, about what it means to worship? And just what is this doctrine of the Trinity really about? How can God be both three and one at the same time? These are the questions which I hope to address in this podcast. I think it's important to tell the story of such a pivotal moment in the history of the church, and really the history of the world, in more detail than you're likely to hear from the pulpit or internet. 
After all, the truth is usually more complex than any of our soundbites about it, and this is doubly true of Nicaea. As we shall see, the Nicene Creed is not really the beginning or end of anything, even the controversy that started it. But it does stand at an inflection point in several crucial historical trends, and so from its vantage point we can learn much about what happened before it, and what was still to come afterwards. But beyond its intellectual value, I also think that we should pay attention to the story of Nicaea because, well, it's just a really good story. I mean, this has everything you could want. Controversy, compelling figures, perennial questions about the nature of reality, a bishop with such poor political skills and even worse luck that he gets exiled five times, another bishop who makes what may be the most poorly timed joke about someone else's mother in world history, Monks getting peer pressured into becoming bishops, emperors changing history, emperors retiring from history to farm cabbages, and Santa Claus. I'm not kidding. Jolly old St. Nicholas really will be making an appearance in our storyline. So if nothing else, the story of Nicaea is worth telling in detail simply because it's a really good story, and one that reminds us that, as in all human things, the profound so readily mixes with the profane. As we get going on this journey, I have a couple of notes about how I will proceed that I will give now in a probably vain attempt to stave off procedural objections later in the podcast from listeners who skipped this proverbial announcement of the plane's safety features before the flight begins. So, first things first. I'm planning to release episodes every other week, somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 minutes per episode. We will also have supplemental episodes for bits of historical trivia or fascinating stories that aren't strictly necessary to the plot, but are just too good to pass by. I'm planning to drop those supplemental episodes on the off weeks from main episodes. They won't be there every time, but I'll try to fit them in where I can. I think I can tell this story in about 25 main episodes, which probably means it will actually take me closer to 35. Estimates are made to be broken, after all, but I promise not to turn this into an interminable odyssey through 4th century minutiae. We're going to tell the story in as much detail as is helpful, and no more. I'm also going to try to tell this story in the order that things happen, but I can't promise that I will always succeed. This is partly because in ancient history, you can't always pin down the exact order of events. You can't even always pin down an exact year that things happen. More on that in upcoming episodes. But the other reason is because there are some times when we are just going to have to rush back to introduce a new character who has been there all along, but has only just now come into prominence in their own right. I'm going to try to keep that to a minimum, but I can't promise perfection. Secondly, I'm going to occasionally make use of some modest anachronisms to ground us in our story. So you'll occasionally hear me describe Nicaea as modern-day Iznik in Turkey, or refer to the various factions at the council and beforehand as proto-Orthodox or proto-heretical. Now, most of you will not care about this. But some of you probably will, and some of you will leave me angry one-star reviews with comments like, Grrr, Ben! This is historically inaccurate! The 4th century denizens of Nicaea had no idea they were part of Turkey or anything of the sort. 
In fact, the Turks wouldn't even live in this part of the world for another six centuries. For shame, Ben, for shame. Or comments like, Wow, dude. Wow. Wow. Nobody before the Council of Nicaea would have described themselves as proto-Orthodox or proto-heretical. And you know what? They would probably be really confused and upset to hear you call them that, too. Hmm. All of these hypothetical angry comments are, of course, true. Fourth-century Romans probably would be really confused and upset to hear me talking that way. But consider this. No 4th century Romans will be listening to my podcast, for they have all gone on to their eternal reward. Those in heaven are enraptured by the glorious visage of the God whom the creed purports to proclaim, and as such have very little need for church history podcasts. I suppose, given the truly abyssal quality of some of the jokes I plan to make, I can't rule out the possibility that some of those in hell are forced to listen to my podcast as punishment for their sins. Alas, there is nothing I can do for them. I can only help those of us in the present who inevitably understand the past through the lens of our present experiences. While I never want to exaggerate or distort the influence of the present, I also feel no need to apologize for using it in the service of understanding. So if hearing that Nicaea is in modern-day Turkey helps you remember where on the map we are, or knowing that Athanasius of Alexandria was part of the proto-Orthodox faction helps you remember which side wins the controversy in the end, then so much the better. As we travel along the road to Nicaea, we'll be paying special attention to the theological and political factors that led to the creed we have in front of us today. My goal is to tell both parts of that story, the theological and the political, together, and to tell them well, because I believe they are inseparable. There is no clean distinction between truth and power, or between religion and politics. The assumption that politics necessarily dirties pure religious sentiment with human corruption and manipulation is a very modern one, and one that I think we will need to examine in this podcast to see if religion really is that pure, or politics really that dirty. With all of that out of the way, we are almost ready to begin our journey. But not quite yet. For it is foolish indeed to set out on a course without sitting down and planning out the way. So next week, we'll begin our analysis of the 4th century by winding back to the 3rd century, a time of massive social, political, and religious upheaval in an empire that keenly felt the weight of its near millennium of history. As tradition and novelty war with each other, as the Roman government chews up and spits out emperors with a truly alarming rapidity, and as an ascendant middle class hears the message of Jesus of Nazareth, the players of the council will begin to take their places on the world stage. And who knows? Perhaps from this sweeping vantage point, as we survey the hills and valleys of history, we may just begin to see how its highways and byways converge with apparent inevitability into the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.